it's good to be here with you guys. As Bryant mentioned, uh, Nam will be returning back from Japan later this week, so uh, please be praying for him and, and uh, all the ministry he's been doing to encourage our brothers overseas. Yeah, just take a moment to get my stuff up here. I've recently been uh, learning to teach from a, a tablet. Um, I've always been pretty slow on new technology, but I figure Moses had two tablets, so I could try my hand at one. Uh, you know, I've always been a fact junkie, a, a trivia junkie. Uh, do we have any people who just like to read random facts? Anyone? Okay, yeah, some, some, some of us. So I thought I'd share with you a few that I found uh, recently uh, this week. Uh, for my YouTube fans, uh, the world's longest basketball shot made with your head was achieved at 37 feet by Ty from Dude Perfect. Impressive. I, I don't even... I think I'd have a concussion after doing that one. The longest Christian song published in two minutes. So worship team, just throwing some ideas out there. You you can find it on Spotify, and I did listen to some of it. So the next time you're driving up to NorCal and you need a song choice, you can just choose one. Here's another one for you. The longest sermon ever preached was conducted in 2014 by Pastor Zach Zender, who set out to preach through the entirety of the Bible. And so 50 sermons, 50 sermon outlines later, 600 PowerPoint slides later, he began preaching on Friday morning and ended Sunday afternoon for a nonstop preaching of 53 hours and 18 minutes. The longest sermon ever preached. And so today, IBC, I'd like to invite you to help me break this record. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. But the longest prayer in the Bible is found in Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. And so that's where we're going to be spending our attention to today. And so we're going to be going through a lot of material. But I think with uh, Nam taking us through many chapters of Job, we are well-practiced Uh, to get through this. As we look at our passage today, I kind of want to break down how we're going to be approaching this. The structure of Nehemiah 9 is actually really simple. We have the assembly of the people, so the people of God gather, and then from verses 6 to 38, the remainder of it is the prayer. It's the prayer. And as we look at what's going on, what you'll notice is that this prayer really has one simple idea. There's a lot in there, but it is a prayer of repentance. And so today, as we look through, as we wade through this passage, the thing I'd like to draw your attention to is what is repentance like? What is real repentance? And so as we go through the passage, I'd like to draw our attention uh, to six different truths, six different features or characteristics of real repentance. Now, before we jump into repentance and Uh, what this verse is about, we should probably talk about what repentance is. It's a word in which if you spend any time here at church or Sunday school, you've probably heard more than once, probably multiple times. The idea of repentance, to make it simple, is a turning away from something, a turning away from sin. The way I like to describe it um, when I uh, teach our youth is that the, the life of a Christian might look like this. Naturally, when we are born, we are running 100 miles an hour towards sin. That is our natural state. That is what we want. That is what we are born with. 
if we continue in that life and we die in our sin, the Bible says we face the wrath of God. That would be called justice. But when someone gets saved, as we are running towards our sin naturally, God stops us for that moment at the preaching of the gospel, and there is a turning of sin, and then a turning of our life away from sin, and now running towards God. That turn, and now that progressive journey called sanctification towards Christ begins at repentance. And so as we look at that, we'll be looking at what it looks like when repentance is real. Now, this is a long passage, and the way I'm going to be approaching this is we'll kind of read different portions as we get closer, as we go along. Now, it's been some time since I think we've been in Nehemiah, so I wanted to give you briefly some context. The book of Nehemiah is a story about a governor, a politician, if you will. He was the cupbearer to the king, and against all odds, Nehemiah has done what no one has been able to achieve or do in the last 140 years. It's been 52 days in which Nehemiah rallies the people, and he gets them, he encourages them, he leads them to build up the walls of Jerusalem. The opposition to the work has been intense, coming from the outside, coming from the inside. There has been whispers of war and attacking armies, and there has been tremendous discouragement that has seeped through the camp time and time again. But through it all, God was faithful, and he worked through Nehemiah. But Nehemiah isn't just about building a wall. It's about the return of God's people to the purposes of God. And so as soon as the wall is built, they don't simply uh, just rest on their laurels. They do what they came to do, and they bring back worship. And in the later chapters of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra reads the law. Ezra enters and he reads the word of God, and the people of God, they repent. They weep, it says, over the word. They haven't heard the word of God like this. They are so moved by what they heard that they are compelled to live differently. And it says that after they gathered, what next happens after the reading of the word is they have a special Bible study of the next day that's recorded in Nehemiah chapter 8. And it talks about how the leaders of the different heads of Israel, they gather together to learn how to study the word of God. And they bring back the Feast of Booths, which was a special uh, religious festival that God commanded of them in which they are to camp together. As I think about the Feast of Booths, it's the people of God gathering, living in tents, um, and hearing the word of God. And I just think, you know, I realized that was like God's first ordained all-church retreat, except uh, here at IBC, we don't, do, we don't live in tents. Um, we, uh, we'll get a little bit nicer here. But that is the context. That is the context in which we come to. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, the worship of God continues. So read with me, if you will, Nehemiah chapter 9. We're reading verses 1 to 5. Verses 1 to 5. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day, for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord, their God. 
Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Now, before we continue on, I probably should make mention of a little bit more structure. Now, this is very small, and I apologize. In your, on your phone, um, there was, you can read a little more closely. But the prayer that we will go into later um, is broken up into five sections as such. I will not read it now, but we'll get to it a little bit later. All right, so the assembly of the people. What happens here? 24th day, so it's been three days later uh, since the most recent events. Um, this would have taken place in about October 19th, if you were to translate from uh, the Jewish calendar to the calendar we use. And so a few days later, the people of God are assembled. And I think we should understand this as Ezra and the Levites, they gather these people together. Right? They have seen that the word of God has caused them to weep and to return and to repent. And so the people of God, they show up, and it says they were assembled with fasting, sackcloth, and with earth on their heads. All of these three things, fasting, sackcloth, and earth on their heads, were signs of mourning, grieving. This is what you did when you were incredibly sad, when you lost someone who was dear to you, or when you sinned against God. And so what we see here is that the repentance that the people of God are feeling is not momentary. It's, it's lasting. Uh, it, it wasn't just a flash in the pan. It continues. And so what we see here, just the first observation I'd like to take us to, is that real repentance grieves over sin. Real repentance grieves over sin. And we can really see this, I think, throughout the entirety of this chapter, if you can kind of hear the words um, that are said, but particularly here, we see that their, their agony over sin has continued. We see that as they live their lives, it says in verse 2, the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners. They understood that God had called them to be different. And so as a means of separating themselves from those who were not of the people of God, they stood out and it says they confessed their sin and their iniquities of their fathers. We see that sin was not something that they just admitted to be true, but it's something that they agonized over in their soul. And I think before we even jump into the content of the prayer itself, it makes me ask a simple question, which is, do I weep over my sin? Do we weep over our sin? You know, if we aren't careful, we can seek forgiveness from others and from God simply because it's the right thing to do, but not because we feel the guilt that God places upon our soul. It's possible to ask for God's patience without truly being penitent. And what we are reminded of here is that confession of sin is such an important part of connecting with God and really understanding repentance. Grieving over sin, it's something that moves their soul. If you've spent any time in church, I think it's, it, it's easy uh, to simply just say that we're wrong, to admit it without feeling it. Uh, perhaps if you've grown up in church, we know that it's wrong to talk to someone in a mean way or to have bad thoughts, but we don't feel 
that need to mourn over it. And let me ask you, Christian, when was the last time you mourned over your sin? Where you felt that agony and that desire to live as if you needed to put ashes on your head? Well, the passage continues on. So it says, as they did this, they stand up in their place. So they are confessing their sin, and it says they stood up where they were, and they read from the book of the law of the Lord. And they did it for a quarter of the day. So probably about, it was probably daylight, a quarter of the daylight hours, so three or four hours. It's a long time. If you'd like uh, us to mirror that, please let your elders know. They read the word of God for a quarter of the day, and then for another quarter of the day, they made confession, and they continued to worship their God. What we're reminded of is that repentance, rightly understood, is a response to the law of God. Repentance is not simply getting caught and having to pay the consequences, but repentance truly is when you see the word of God for what it says, and we respond rightly. Now, it's easy to kind of look at kind of how they, how they thought about their lives and say, well, you know, we're, we're dirty, we're, we're wrong, and we're sinful. And because we're in trouble, because they are slaves, because their life is difficult, um, it's easy to imagine that they could have just simply felt bad about their circumstances, but their understanding of their repentance is based in what God had to say. It's not simply the shame and the result of feeling bad having to live with the result of their sin. It's that they read the word of God, and because God said not to live a certain way, repentance is what follows. We see that they had a hunger for God's word. We see that their repentance comes strictly from understanding what God wanted them to do, and yet they had failed to do it. And you can imagine in that congregation of those there that they were people who had different sins and different problems. You can imagine that they're people from all walks of life. And we read about that earlier. We had people who were powerful, and we had people who were mighty, and we had people who were probably forgettable and more insignificant. And yet the single thing that binded them together in this moment, in this act of repentance, is that they were responding to what God had to say. It reminds us that as we think about our repentance, we repent because God's word has called us to it. We don't repent because of what the culture simply tells us to think or to do. We repent when God has said, and we have failed. We are reminded that repentance, rightly understood, is rooted in what God wants us to do. And, not, and nothing else. John Calvin points out that repentance is nothing else but a reformation of the whole life according to the law of God. Repentance is nothing else but a reformation of the whole life according to the law of God. And they had realized that in their life living in exile, they had not done so. It makes us ask the question, are there areas where we have not given our whole life to the law of God? Perhaps for us in this room, there are areas of our life, there are sacred cows, sacred idols that we have been harboring, which we have hid from the truths of the law of God. Certain passages in scripture we dare not read because it would actually call us to live differently. And yet that is not the case here for the people 
of Nehemiah. Well, they continue on, and we get to the stairs of the Levites, and we aren't really sure where or what that is. It was probably a location near the temple, but we have some Levites, and I won't read the names again, uh, but they gather together and they pray. And what they do is they worship God, and they say, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And so right off the bat, we're going to get our first three uh, points about what real repentance is, and it's simple. Real repentance results in the worship of God. It's not simply enough for our repentance to sit in agony over our sin. Rightly understood, repentance should result in praising who God is. They say, stand up, bless the Lord our God from everlasting to everlasting. They're saying, bless his glorious name. Why? Because the God who they have sinned against is the same God who can forgive. We are reminded that when we get to that point of realizing we are in sin, that we have treated our neighbor, our sibling, our spouse in an ungodly way, when we have said things, when we have done things, when we have looked at things that would dishonor the Lord, we can praise God in knowing our repentance does not just keep us in the dust, but it elevates us to worship and to the praise of his name. We get to worship here on Sundays because repentance leads us to getting closer to Christ. It helps us know who he is. And so rightly understood, repentance must always take us to the throne of grace, saying God is good and he is mighty because he can save sinners like you and sinners like I. And it's with that that we get to the big prayer. And we jump in, and really there is... As we look at this prayer, there's really just one feature of repentance I want to focus on. There's a lot we could go into. But the prayer begins, uh, or continues on, and there is discussion among commentators in terms of who is actually praying this prayer. Um, A natural reading kind of leads you to believe that it's the Levites who continue to read, or continue to pray, um, in probably what very similar to some of the language and style of Ezra and Ezra chapter 9. But either way, what is important is that this prayer is prayed for the people of God, and I think it represents the heart of everyone who is present. Now, as we go through this prayer, what you will first notice is this prayer is the most full summary of the history of the people of God up until this point. Reading this prayer is going to be like reading uh, the Sparknotes version of the Old Testament uh, story. Redemptive history in a nutshell. And the reason they're going to do that, as we'll see, they're they're building a case for how great God is, how great his mercy and forgiveness is, and then how undeserving they are of the repentance that they are going to be asking asking God for. So, let's jump in. So we get to the prayer of the people. And what we're going to see is that real repentance is God-focused. Real repentance is God-focused. There is so much in here, and we're going to unpack it. As a means of doing so, we're going to be jumping back into the Old Testament. We're going to have to be unearthing all these Bible stories and putting them together one after another. All right, so as we go... 
uh, through this part. The first part we're going to look at is from creation to covenant. Creation to covenant. This is verses 6 through 8. It says this, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Let me stop there. He begins by saying, you are the, lo- you are the Lord, you alone. This sounds a lot like the great Shema of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And he begins by almost speaking this language of Genesis 1. There is, in the beginning was the word, and there was God. Kind of being similar. And it says, you made heavens, you made the heaven of heavens. And what we see is God is being given credit. He's been giving honor and worship for having created all that there is. Not only does he create, but it says he preserves everything. And the host of heaven worships you. There's no mention of mankind here yet. There was God. He created all, and everything that was worshiped God. God is sovereign and all-powerful. And then we get to man, and we skip the story of Adam, and we go straight to Abraham. It says, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and gave him the name Abraham. And by the way, this is the only reference outside of Genesis itself to the changing of the name of Abraham. And it says, you found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Girgashite, and you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. What we see right off the bat is God has gone from creator to covenant maker. He, he enters the story by skipping over the story of Adam and going straight to good things. He skips the fall of man, and he talks about how you chose Abram and gave him he removed him from the land of Chaldeans and changed his name. He found his heart faithful. And he was faithful to fulfill God's covenant promises. What's interesting is the Abrahamic covenant that was made to him has three parts. Land, lots of offspring, and redemption. Redemption. And in scripture, the way they word that redemption part is, through you all nations will be blessed. And I don't think Abraham quite understood maybe exactly how that would happen. But we know today that the way in which all nations will be blessed through Abraham would be through his eventual descendant, Jesus Christ, who would save us all from our sins. What you'll notice in this passage, first of all, and really throughout all of from now to verse 31, is the emphasis on the word you. The emphasis is on what God is doing. Do you see that? You, O Lord, you, you, you. Throughout the entire passage, the emphasis will be on what God has done. And the reason why they're doing this, they're building a slow case to show how mighty God is so that when they ask for God to give them mercy, they are saying, God, this is what you are capable of, and this is what your character is. And on that basis, we repent. And on that basis, they're going to ask for mercy. Before they even get to forgive us, Lord, they begin with, this is who you are. This is what you're worthy of. You are sovereign. You are powerful. You are faithful. And it ends in verse 8. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. It is the reminder here that God is and always will be a promise keeper. That even when we are faithless, he is faithful. We then move on from Egypt to Exodus. 
And this is where we get to uh, the problems of mankind. Everything seems good here so far in the prayer. And this is what it says in verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea. Notice the emphasis is not on, Lord, we are suffering, we are in difficulty. That's true. But the emphasis is on what God has done. And it says in, in verse 10, And performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. So much of what is going to be unpacked here points to this singular point that in Egypt and throughout all of history, God has been doing the act of making for himself a great name. Making for himself a great name back then and even to this day. And so let me unpack here what has happened. He's referencing the story of Moses. And if you have seen the movie The Prince of Egypt, just a fantastic movie, by the way, uh, this is what they're talking about. But let me, let me see if I can just unfold a few things for you. They saw the affliction of God's people. They were crying out, it says. The, they were enslaved by Egypt. And it was a very, very difficult time for the people of God. The nation of, of Egypt used them as slave labor. They were oppressing them. And ironically... The very reason for why Israel was among the people of Egypt was because Joseph, generations earlier, had saved Egypt from famine. And you can imagine some people being like, why did God even lead us into this land to save these people who would later enslave us? And yet, as we see, God was making a name for himself. Now, as we think about what happened, it says... God performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants. Have you ever taken a moment to kind of look at each of those ten plagues? Maybe some of, maybe some of you have. Uh, but something that might interest you is that if you were to study each of those plagues, what you will find is each of those plagues directly corresponds to a different god in the Egyptian pantheon. Let me give you a few examples. Plague one was the Nile River turning into blood. You guys remember that? The fish died. It stank really bad. And you can imagine what this would do to the crops because the farming and agriculture of Egypt was dependent upon the Nile River flooding a little bit and irrigating all the land. But in doing this, God would have been making an assault upon the Egyptian god Hopi, whose job was to irrigate the land and to provide for the Egyptian people. Plague six, and we could do all of them, but plague six was boils and sores. This was when the people were affected with all these physical abnormalities that would have been hurting and would have looked like boils in Exodus chapter 9. This would have been an assault on the god of Isis, a god who was the goddess of magic and the one for whom the Egyptians believed had taught them medicine. And yet no amount of medicine could ever undo the sores and the boils that God had given them. Plague number nine was the plague of darkness. It was three days of complete darkness. It was a darkness so intense that it says it was pitch black, as if they couldn't see what was in front of them. And it says the darkness was so great that it could be felt. And for three days, the Egyptians could not see anyone or leave their home. This was the original shut-in. And so what we then see is that this is an attack on the god of Ra, 
who was the sun god. He was the, most, he was the leader of the entire Egyptian pantheon, aside from Pharaoh himself. And even Ra could not bring back the sun, showing that God was more powerful. And then plague number 10, the death of the firstborn. It says that at this time, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn, even of the livestock, died. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. As the king of Egypt, he was actually considered the greatest of all the Egyptians, Egyptian gods. He was considered to be the one to uh, be the descendant of Ra himself, and even he could not hold back the deliverance that God was working out. And so one by one, God shows that he is more powerful than the gods of Egypt, that no other god can hold back God's deliverance, that he is mightier. And so what happens? He releases, Pharaoh releases the people. And verse 11 says, You divided the sea before them so that they went through it in the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. If you know the story, finally, Pharaoh lets go of God's people. And God is the one orchestrating all of this. And eventually, Pharaoh comes to himself and says, Wait, we just gave up the entire uh, enslaved workforce. We can't allow this. So they get their entire army, 600 war chariots, chasing down a traveling nation of refugees, of women and children and old people, and they chase them down. And they get to the Red Sea. And you can imagine what the people of God are thinking, we're going to die. In fact, what they say is this. They say, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And as I read that, I just think, how many times does my heart say that when I think about the positions God puts me in? How often is that our grumbling with God? God, why why did you do this to us so? And if you know the story, God parts the Red Sea The people of God go through, and it says Egypt actually was on their tail, and so God actually makes their wheels of the chariots get muddied so they can't go as quickly while the people of God run on dry land. And the waters collapse, and like a stone thrown into mighty waters, God drowns the enemies of Israel. It says in verse 12, By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. The people of God continue to look for the promised land, the land promised to Abraham that was made. And to guide them, because they didn't have GPSs back in that day, during the daytime there was a pillar of cloud that led them, and a lot of scholars think what they would do is they would just literally camp under the cloud, and then at night there was a pillar of fire. And though, to be sure, the Israelites did get attacked a number of times, you can imagine just the protection that would have just naturally offered. I mean, if, if there's a band of people you're going to attack? Do you want to attack the group of people with a normal group of people or the one where there's a pillar of fire every night from God? And God continues to be faithful. Then they come to Sinai. He's physically guided them, and now he's going to guide them morally and spiritually. It says, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. 
and gave them rights and rules, true laws, good statutes, and commandments. And you may note to them the holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. God not only rescued them from their current situation, he not only protected them from danger, but he told them how to live a better life and how to have a relationship with him. He gave them explicit and clear instructions and laws. Everything seems good. God has been doing everything in his power. It says that you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water from them out of the rock for their thirst. You told them to go and possess the land that you may swore that you had sworn to give them. God not only does that, he provides them food, meal after meal. And God has shown that he is faithful. That God is faithful. But next, we get to verse 16. And this is where things begin to take a turn. And this is where we begin to think a little bit differently uh, about what Israel is really asking for. It's here that we get to what I might call relationship despite rebellion. In verse 16, it says, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. The language is one of an animal, but you're trying to steer it to the left or to the right, but their neck just stiffens. They will not have any of it. They want their way and not yours. It says they refused to obey and were not mindful. They didn't care about the wonders that you performed among them. They stiffened their neck, there's that language again, and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Israel. What we see here is the, in this prayer at least, is the change in what is going on here. God has been faithful, but the people of God have not been. You know what's interesting about this passage, and as you even read the account in the Old Testament, is that there's no sense of people saying, we don't believe the, issue, the main issue was not that they didn't believe in the existence of a God. Their, their issue was they didn't believe that the God who had saved them time and time again would save them then, that he was worth following. The issue was not belief in his existence, but belief that God was truly good, that he had something to offer them. And so what they do is they plot rebellion. They appoint a leader. While Moses is trying to bring them to the promised land, it says they appointed a leader to return them to slavery in Egypt. And if we can just take a moment to stop there, how many times does our heart feel prone to wander where our heart wants to lead us back to the slavery of our own sin that we had asked God to rescue us from? When those, the shackles of sin that we were born with start to look comfortable and enticing once again. And as you read this, you just, just being a listener without knowing anything, you just might expect God to say, and then God destroyed Israel and it was over. But that's not what it says. Because the verse continues, it says, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. God is not only forgiving It says, he's ready to forgive. He doesn't say, I will forgive you, Israel, if you, uh, you know, will simply uh, follow um, these arbitrary list of commandments. He says, he will, he, in scripture says, he will forgive. And he calls them to live differently, but there are no rules and stipulations 
to God's forgiveness. If you will ask him for forgiveness, he will forgive. He is ready to forgive, Scripture says. It says he is gracious and merciful. He does not give us as our sins deserve, and he gives us better than we have merited. It says he is slow to anger. God, in his kindness, does not strike down Israel here, and he does not strike any of us down immediately the moment we sin. God is slow. He is desiring for us to repent. That is who our God is. And it says he is abounding in steadfast love. His love is like a fountain that never stops. And then it says, did not forsake them. One should expect that if the God of the Bible was like every other pagan God, that the people of God, that we would deserve to be cut off from relationship. Verse 18 says that even when they had made for themselves a golden calf, even when after all of that they had been rescued, they had experienced all those miracles, all those wonders, it says, what did they do? They made a golden calf with the gold and the jewelry that they got from the Egyptians that was the result of all those ten plagues that God had worked to bring about their deliverance. They take that wealth, and as an affront to God, they build a golden calf. And with it, they commit great blasphemies. And yet, verse 19, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not lead them in the way and did not depart them day by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they should go. It says, your good spirit to instruct them in all. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your mana from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Time and time again, in spite of Israel's sin and rebellion, God gave them relationship, and he accepted their repentance when they did. And if you catch that for 40 years, their clothes did not depreciate, and their feet did not swell. I mean, that's just amazing. If you think about it, I mean, our clothes just gets tight. It just wears down by use. And yet, their clothes did not. According to a a stat I was reading, the average life expectancy of a pair of jeans is supposed to be two years. And you can imagine that the people of Israel probably didn't have many options for clothing. And yet, it says their clothes did not wear out. And their feet didn't swell. I mean, from one day of Disneyland, my feet are hurting. I can't imagine doing 40 years of Disneyland, and that's feet on beautiful Anaheim ground, not wilderness. And yet there's a supernatural sustaining of the people of God. We then move on to the conquest of Canaan. The conquest of Canaan. And this is uh, verses 22 to 25. It says, in this point, he called them to uh, move forward. And so it says, you gave them the kingdoms and the peoples and allowed to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. We're getting into the period of Joshua and then the judges. In spite of Israel's sin, and they're going to sin and sin and sin, God will remain faithful. And the emphasis continues to be on God's faithfulness, not ours. Not our merit, not what we have done, not because we are so worthy. 
Verse 24 says, So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued, not by the strength of our armies, not our military tactics, it says, you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand, their kings, the people of the land, that they with might to do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. God fulfilled his promise to give them offspring. He fulfilled their promise to Abraham to give them land. And once again, God is merciful, and all seems well according to the narrative of the prayer. But then we go from judges to judgment. Nevertheless, that big scary word in verse 26 goes like this. They were disobedient and rebelled. They rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. This is here in verse 26, a summary of the period of judges to uh, the judgment that will come in exile. The idea here is that God had been calling his people to return back to him as they had sinned, as they had tried to live like the rest of the world. And the people of God, who were supposed to be the people of God, ignored the law of God, casting behind their backs, and they even killed the very people who were trying to call them back. Verse 27 then says, Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies. And here we're going to get the cycle of the judges summarized for us. Into the hand of their enemies who made them to suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to, once again, God, your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. We're reminded here of the time of the judges. We are reminded of small saviors who came to rescue the people of God from the oppression that they were living under. We're reminded of people like Shamgar, a guy who defeated, when there's an army of 600 Philistines came to attack Israel, this dude with not a weapon but a farming tool took down a whole army with, with an ox goad, which is like a, it's like a trowel. You could think of stories like Gideon and Jephthah, And the story we all know of Samson, the strong man. And the emphasis of those stories is not that those judges were so amazing, but that God was so merciful and kind. And for every small savior that God gave them, eventually that savior died. God's mercy was forgotten. And the cycle of judges continues again with Israel sinning, God judging them, God sending a savior, Israel being grateful, and a generation later, Israel falls back into sin, telling the story in the heart of every person. Verse 28 summarizes that after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times, many times it says you delivered from them, you delivered them according to your mercies. Twelve judges later, twelve saviors later, followed then by Eli and Samuel, the final judges in the book of 1 Samuel. And it says, you warned them in order to turn them back to law. God pleaded. He did everything in his sovereign power to show us the need to follow him. Yet it says they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. 
which if a person does, he shall live by them. And live by them they did, because God brings about judgment. And it says they turned a stubborn shoulder and a stiffened their neck once again, and they would not obey. Verse 30, And many years you bore with them, and warmed them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them in the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And that's really all that the speaker of this prayer is trying to say. You have been a gracious and merciful God. Our prayers of repentance are focused in who God is and who he has been. That is the story of Israel. Because the current state in which they're in is Israel has been destroyed, judged, squished by another nation, and they are in exile. And that is the judgment they are receiving. And it's with here that we then get to the final plea of the people. And here's where it is. In verse 32, they say, Now therefore our God, the great and mighty, awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, and our prophets, and all your people since the time of the king of Assyria unto this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for we have dealt faithfully, you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Here's what they're saying. They are saying, God, we're no different. And the, the, our life, the consequences of our life, we have deserved this, And it says, you have acted righteously. Their point of praying all these things is that, God, you have been a merciful God. That's who you are. And we are a sinful people, and we're just like our fathers. In fact, we're worse because we had all their examples, and we did nothing. We've done the same. And so we're reminded of, as they go to repent, they say, let not all the hardships seem little to you. We're reminded that real repentance is humble. That real repentance says this, it says, Lord, we need you. There's, that's what they're saying. They're saying, Lord, let the things that we're going through, don't let it seem little. Lord, don't forget us. And they know, they're humbly saying, we deserve this. There is, we have, you have every right to judge us as you have been. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us. We deserve this. And we, so we today are reminded that when we repent before God, our repentance should be humble. You notice that there is really a complete ownership of their sin. They're not justifying the way that they have been living. They're not saying, well, if only this had been different. There is complete ownership of what they have done wrong. There are no excuses. There is no lawyering. They're saying, you have done justly. You have been faithful. There is a humility in which they're coming before God. You can just kind of hear it drip out of what they're saying, that they realize they don't deserve anything. And we also today, Christians, don't deserve anything as well. They continue on and say, Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers, those are our leaders. They have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments or your warnings that you gave them. We are the same even in their own kingdom, and amid your great goodness that you gave them in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, and check this out, we are slaves this day 
in the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruits and the good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. They're saying, God, help us. Notice they don't even ask to be rescued from their slavery, but it is implied. You can hear it from their heart. And what's interesting is, yes, it's true that they were not slaves in the same way today as they were in Egypt. In fact, they had a lot more liberties and privileges uh, under Persia than they would have had under other conquered, conquering nations. But they knew that they were, called to, they were supposed to be ruling over this land, but instead they were enslaved by it. And financially, we know that the Persian people taxed those subjugated through the roof. We have archaeological records that say that the taxes could get up to 20, even 50%. I mean, imagine paying 50% on your income tax in this upcoming month. And so even if they didn't have shackles on their wrists, they felt it in their pocketbooks. They felt that all the work they did amounted to very little paying to a pagan king. And so also we are reminded, when they say that we are slaves, we are reminded in a similar yet different way that the slavery that we have all been born with is not a slavery of an oppressor, but a slavery to sin. It is the reminder that if anyone would come and repent of their ways to say that we are a slave to sin, that God will liberate us from the sin that we have always had, that God can forgive us if we will turn from our ways and give our life to Jesus Christ. The prayer goes on and says, they rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Perhaps for some of us in this room, the difficulties in your life are the direct cause of consequences of your sin. Perhaps for some of us, our broken relationships, the way our family is, our job situation, our life may be the direct result of having to deal with what happens when we sin consequences for which there is no easy fix, for which, for which there is no easy out. And that's exactly what we see happening in Nehemiah chapter 9. And so if you will, if that is you, if you will echo the prayer of Lord, we are in great distress, we are slaves, you have been faithful, we faithless, then God is ever faithful. And though God doesn't guarantee that repentance will result in the removal of all that is in this life in terms of consequences, God will be faithful in the life to come. Well, our last and final thing is found in verse 38. Because of the repentance they have been carrying out, it says, verse 38, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on a sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And we won't go into that document in great detail, but what we see is that they are not just all talk. They're not just saying we've sinned, we feel bad, but what we'll see is that they are following it up with a resolution for obedience. In Nehemiah chapter 10, they are putting in writing, formalizing their resolution to do what is right. And they say, we're going to obey God, and they're going to put down the names of those who are going to do it. They put their leaders, princes, Levites, and priests, so that anyone in this generation or anyone who comes into Israel can know that they are calling themselves to new commitments to spiritual renewal. And the three features of those covenant, which we'll see later, uh, next time we're here, uh, are not intermarrying with the pagan nations. It is caring for uh, the ministry of the temple 
and it is just a renewed vigor to care for the things of the Lord. The end of chapter 10 really summarizes it in saying this, we will not neglect the house of our God. And as we think about our own life, as we think about the ways in which we sin, when we sin, when we find ourselves needing to repent, repentance should always be followed with the desire to not only put off sin, but to put on righteousness, to be able to echo with Nehemiah 10 that we will not neglect the house of our God. The reality is the Christian life begins with repentance, but must continue with repentance. Uh, Though we are saved at the moment when we first truly repent, God saves us, we are positionally sanctified, we are called to progressively sanctify, meaning to grow, to be more like Christ. We do not repent of our sin uh, on a day-to-day basis when it happens simply to be resaved or to save our salvation, that's not it. But as Kevin DeYoung points out, the mystery of the Christian life is that Christ expects us to flee sin and the devil, but he does not expect us to rid ourselves of either on this side of glory. Repentance is a way of life. If you're a Christian, repentance is something that you should do often because we sin often. And if you have not found repentance to be a practice that has become a feature of your Christianity and you must question whether your Christianity is real. When we think about what it means to repent, for real, we should come to passages like Nehemiah chapter 9 to ask ourselves if our repentance is humble, if it's followed by a resolution to obedience, if it's measured and and cared for with grieving over sin and, and all these different things that we've been studying today. But there's a sad part to the book of Nehemiah, because if you've noticed, or if, as the chapter of Nehemiah, they mentioned how God fulfilled his promise of land and offspring. But it says when they prayed, they said, Lord, we are slaves. And the sad reality is that the book of Nehemiah ends, and the people of God will remain slaves. There will be no judge. There will be no King David. There will be no savior in this generation. The next book will be the book of Malachi. It'll be a sad book that will just continually rebuke the people of God for their sin, for not holding to these very things, actually. And then 400 years go by. Not a single prophet, no king in Jerusalem under the Davidic throne. And it would seem for all intents and purposes that God has abandoned his people. It would seem as such. That is until, as you know the story, a baby is born of a virgin, fully man, fully God, better than any judge Israel has ever seen, superior to any king that has ever reigned, more powerful and wiser and without equal. Jesus comes to earth. The true answer to the prayer of Nehemiah to lift them out of their slavery, not the slavery of a king, but the slavery from our sin. And so today, I would encourage you, if you are merely an admirer of Christ, if you are merely a fan of his teaching but not a follower of his heart, let me invite you today to give up the shackles of sin that you were born with and have become accustomed to. Let me invite you today to repent and to give your life to Christ. Today could be the day of salvation. There is no Bible knowledge test you must have. There is no moral achievements you must have. You must simply be, Lord, 
Do not look little upon the hardships that you have given us. And if Christ is your king, let us bask in the glory of knowing that if your repentance is real, so also is your eternity with him. Let us glory in the reality that even though repenting of our sins daily is so hard and difficult, it will be worth the reward knowing Christ face to face one day. And so as I close our time together, let me leave you with the simple words of a song that we often sing. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin, yes, had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. As we think about our repentance, may it be something that we make real in our own life day in and day out. And may we always look to his faithfulness to help us push forward to be faithful to him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for your kindness. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us this long, lengthy, and rich prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9 to remind us that, Lord, nothing changes under the sun in the hearts of man. And yet also at the same time, nothing changes in the faithfulness and kindness of God. Lord, may we love you evermore. May we serve you better because our repentance matters, because our repentance is tied to your salvation. And Lord, we worship you for being a God who saves and a God who forgives. Help us turn our hearts to you. We love you, Lord. Amen.